1: Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. And when we say undisclosed locations, we mean it. Like, we're in a bunker right now, surrounded by (laughs) stockpile toilet paper and water. We're not going (laughs) to let anyone near us. Um... Uh, Ryan Ryan is sitting here with a shotgun at the front door. Um, to, to, <laughs> I'm sure that cough is nothing. We're joined not only by Ryan Goodman, as we are every week at this time, but also by our good friend Max Boot of the Council on Foreign Relations. Max, are you touching your face?
0: Uh, no, I think I, I'm gonna get like one of those uh collars that dogs get, you know, to prevent them from <laughs> rubbing their face. You can make a lot of money that.
1: That's a great idea. I've been going and discussing with my colleagues, you know, get having deep state radio like branded soap dishes or hand sanitizer, but dog, you know, like those dog cones to keep you from touching your face, right? That's really good. That's that's you know it could be a side sideline, um, yep. so you know you know we're sitting here joking about coronavirus uh, as the case number seems to be approaching a hundred thousand as the number of people in the U.S. is increasing, the number of deaths in the U.S. is increasing. We went from one guy having it in Westchester County in New York State to a thousand people under self quarantine. Um, and one of the really pernicious aspects of this disease is that eighty percent of the people who get it um, have no symptoms to speak of. So they, you know, are very mild symptoms. So they may be going around sniffling, as Ryan was just doing, and 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 they don't know they've got it. But then they pass it to somebody else who's more vulnerable to it. But there's another aspect of the disease which I'd like to talk about, which is even more pernicious. Um, I'm, I'm sure neither of you guys remember this cause you're much too young, but in 2004, in the midst of the SARS crisis, uh, I wrote an article, it was a front page article in the, uh, Sunday Washington post called the buzz when the buzz bites back. And the article was essentially about, um, the, the, the fact that, in, in the information age, when you've got a disease, an epidemic, like SARS at, at the time, um, sometimes the greatest impact of the disease comes from the spread of information about the disease and the reaction to information about the disease rather than the disease. And it was at the time that I wrote this article um, that I, I made my only contribution to mankind Um, which was a word, well, besides my daughters, which was a word um, infodemic, which is now in the dictionary. People talk about infodemic. And actually I was, and I'll wrap this story up shortly, but I was at the time on the um, advisory board of the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, the best school of public health that there is, also known as the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And um, I was talking to an epidemiologist, and we were talking about how the spread of information across the internet, social media, and so forth, is identical to the spread of a disease. When you talk about something going viral, it's literally going viral, it spreads person to person in much the same way. And so, if there's a panic, um, uh, or people are changing their economic patterns, or, you know, and so forth, you end up with that having a considerable effect SARS killed a couple thousand people 40 billion dollars in damage to the asian economy people stopped traveling uh today stock market went down precipitously at the opening because airlines are say are, are expecting hundreds of millions of in losses because people aren't traveling. The Geneva Auto Show was canceled. The London Book Fair was canceled. Um, uh, opera companies, I w- my wife's an opera singer. She was saying that opera companies are now talking about canceling shows. And they they say, well, this is force majeure, which means that they don't have to pay the people and their contracts. And all of a sudden, there are people who aren't getting paid. So that's one aspect of an infodemic. Another, to wrap this long thing up and to get us to where we're going, um is is when people spread bad information. Now, theoretically, the government should be controlling this. They should be aware of trying to contain the epidemic and the infodemic. China blew it with SARS initially. They tried to lie about it, and that's what triggered a massive spread of information cell phone to cell phone. They've done that again this time. But now we have the president of the United States, Donald Trump, as recently as, you know, yesterday, saying he thinks this is going to be wrapped up very quickly, he doesn't buy the estimates of the the uh, mortality rate from this, you know, people say it's over 2%, including, you know, Anthony Fauci of the National Institute of Health. Donald Trump says, no, I think it's under 1%. The National Institute of Health, CDC, says, don't go to work if you have these symptoms. Donald Trump's like, go to work, don't worry about it. Um, it's not it's not it's not a big deal. He's got people on his staff going saying it's not a big deal. We actually have a massive disinformation campaign to the first big external crisis in the Trump administration being run by the Trump administration. What do you think of all that, Max?
0: That makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I think this is you know, the first crisis that uh, Trump has confronted that has not been largely of his own making. And that makes it very hard for him to manage. Because if you think back to prior crises, I mean, some of them were not actual crises at all, like the caravans coming from Mexico, that was entirely a figment of his own imagination as trying to make that into a national security crisis. But then the one other real crisis he's faced was with Iran. And again, Trump was really the instigator. And so he has always had the option of Ratcheting up tensions or dialing down tensions, right? And so he was able to ratchet them down before we got into an all-out war with Iran. But now obviously he's finally met an adversary that will that he could not attack with uh, with missiles or drone strikes, one that will not cower before his Twitter account, one that he could not give an insulting nickname and and you know uh, uh, bully off the stage. and you know he's he is uh, you know, frantic because of it. He doesn't know what to do. So he's kind of hauling out his old game plan, which is basically to, uh, you know, try to lie, to try to uh, deflect, to try to blame others, including, and he's, you know, today he was trying to blame President Obama, which is ludicrous. Um, And then, you know, he's basically just trying to wish the crisis away and, and pretend that, that everything is normal, just as he tries to wish other inconvenient facts away, like he pretends that there was no Russian interference in our election and that his campaign had nothing to do with it. Um, and that's so far been a winning strategy for him, I, hate, I have to say, I mean, much as I hate to say it, it has been, at least from a political standpoint. But you know, he's not. none of his political tricks are going to work uh, confronting the coronavirus. And you've seen how poorly the markets have reacted in the last couple of weeks, even as Kudlow and Trump and others. Have tried to tell everybody, oh, it's all perfect, fine, beautiful, nothing to worry about. People just don't believe that, and it's just so at odds with reality that, you know, there's really a sense now. I think that uh, Trump's—it's not just the whole nation at risk, but it's Trump's presidency at risk as well. And I think, you know, he's kind of flailing around uh, all the more so because this is the week when it looked like. Uh, uh, Bernie Sanders would no longer be the Democratic nominee, and that is, of course, Trump's preferred opponent. So now he's tearing down the barrel of Joe Biden, conceivably in the fall, at the same time that a lot of the stock market gains that he brags about on a daily basis are being wiped out. And so, you know, he just doesn't know what to do. And uh, he's he's flailing around, even which, which just adds kind of to the sense of uncertainty and chaos.
1: So, Ryan, you're great colleague, Kate Brannon, who is one of the best Twitter accounts there is because she doesn't seem to lose her sense of humor Mm. most of the time, Um, a couple hours ago nominated this tweet from Donald Trump as the most irresponsible tweet of the year. Uh, He said, with approximately 100,000 coronavirus cases worldwide and 3,280 deaths, the United States, because of quick action on closing our borders, has as of now only 129 cases, 40 Americans brought in, and 11 deaths. We're working very hard to keep these numbers as low as possible. Um, to, you know, you you've got to wonder at some level is he unaware of the fact that people will report the truth and that you know when the situation becomes more grave, it'll be apparent that it's more grave. Um, or do you think that he is buying into, you know, the experience that Max describes, which is, you know, half Americans seem perfectly happy to buy his bullshit.
2: <clears throat> so I think he's very used to people buying his, you know, not his message. And I think he, in any moment, my sense is that he tries to just convince the person in front of him or just get past the particular time because in the future he can lie about what he said in the past. So it's just what suits his interest right now in his messaging. And um, and, that, and that there are a number of people who will buy into this. They'll say, and then it's going to be repeated on Fox tonight, that this is exactly correct and look at how well the United States is doing vis-a-vis the rest of the world. But there are um, bald-faced lies in the... In this uh, particular tweet, so I understand where Kate's coming from. So, for example, the idea that there are only 129 cases is nuts, and n- nobody thinks that there are just only 129 cases because of the testing that's being done. Oh,
1: and, and the testing that hasn't been
2: done. And the testing that hasn't been done, and so others have begun to speculate based on this tweet. Now I do think it also sends out this reverberating effect to other parts of the administration. Uh, to do what they always are supposed to do, which is fall in line with his messaging. And then just to bring this right back to a national security issue, so let's also recall in light of this tweet that just a couple of days ago the New York Times reported that the Secretary of Defense, Esper, has told the military and commanders in South Korea and elsewhere that they need to check in with him before making any decisions on the, on the coronavirus that might interfere with Trump's messaging.
1: Right and to 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 add to that Max um you have um uh embassy officials in embassies downplaying it yeah. it's it is the policy of the United States not to mobilize to address this crisis it is the policy of the United States to minimize the crisis and lie about the crisis which is why the people who are scientists who actually understand how to deal with it were relegated to a secondary role in managing it. And Mike Pence, who is the president's not terribly bright, you know, you know, parrot who sits on his shoulder and says, whatever you say, boss, uh, is put in charge of it. Anthony Fauci doesn't go on Sunday morning shows. Mike Pence goes on Sunday morning shows. Um, And just to add up. a little Philip to that, I think what you're going to begin to see, and we've already seen some of it in Europe and uh, from others, uh, and 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 stirrings of it, even in this Trump tweet, are, are, are using the crisis, not just lying about the crisis, but using it to advance their agenda, closing the border, for example. If we keep people out of the country particularly people who don't look like us particularly people of color Asians and and people from from poor countries uh, that will keep us safer and so the sort of ethno nationalist subtext of the administration uh, ends up being bolstered by the way they twist um, their their take on this max so it's not just it's not just rejecting the facts. It's lying in a way that compounds what's wrong. That's To me, that's the infodemic, right? When, when people right. panic, when they compound the underlying problem.
0: Right. I mean, if, if you were to think in a theoretical sense of, you know, what kind of leader would you want to handle a pandemic like this, pretty much uh, the ideal would be the opposite of Trump in every respect. You would want somebody who would have respect for facts. Who would level with the public, who uh, would not, you know, induce panic with with over the top uh, fear, uh, but also at the same time would not induce complacency by, uh, you know, pretending that everything was fine. And of course, you know, that kind of leader is exactly the kind of leader that Donald Trump is not. For him, everything is uh, is viewed through only one prism, which is political self interest. What? What benefits Donald Trump? And he doesn't even think ahead. I mean, for Donald Trump, you know, long-term planning is figuring out if he's going to go to Burger King or, or McDonald's for lunch. Uh, he doesn't really think ahead a few months from now, because what he is doing is is not only colossally irresponsible from the standpoint of, of national interest, it's also very short-sighted and stupid from the standpoint of political self-interest, because, you know, the more that he— minimizes the danger right now and pretends that everything is fine and you know we're going to get a virus a vaccine any day now and 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 everything the, the economy is going to be great only a few dozen people have it everybody's going to be fine if that's not the way that things work out if in fact the situation gets a lot worse as as a lot of uh, a lot of the uh, doctors and scientists seem to expect He's going to be blamed for that, whereas if he were taking a more realistic attitude right now to say, "Hey, this is a serious situation, don't panic, but we need to do things uh, to get it under control and you know you we need to understand the the kind of danger that we face and in, in, in kind of in the way that 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 FDR did with his fireside chats, you know really leveling with the American people and giving them a sense of reality, not giving them happy talk, that would actually redound to his benefit, I think, down the road. Whereas now he is really setting himself up for a fall in, you know, in kind of the way that that George W. Bush did with his, you know, happy talk about uh, Hurricane Katrina early on, you know, hell of a job, Brownie, that kind of stuff. I mean, that's what that's what Trump sounds like right now. And as I say, it doesn't make any sense either from the national standpoint or from his own personal political self-interest.
1: If you like deep state radio, You might want to give a listen to Deep Dish on Global Affairs, a foreign policy podcast that goes beyond the headlines on critical global issues. Each episode features new experts explaining current events, including the Trump administration's plan in Syria. Deep Dish examines what's happening, why it matters, and what you should watch for as the stories unfold. Subscribe to Deep Dish on Global Affairs today wherever you get your podcasts. You know, Ryan, during the SARS crisis, I had a little company um, called IntelliBridge, and we, at the time, were doing sort of early stuff in open-source intelligence. And I had these partners who were experts, Anthony Lake, former National Security Advisor, Susan Rice, who later became a National Security Advisor, John Gannon, who had been at the CIA, and others. and. At the time, the person who was running the analytical operation was a a, a great guy, former U.S. Navy admiral. And one day he came in to me and he said, one of the analysts who was reading stuff in Chinese on the Internet had seen Chinese newspaper blurb in a Guangdong newspaper that said, as to the rumors of the spreading virus, don't panic. (laughs) And you know, in China at the time, this was sort of in the beginning of texting, and what happened was that literally millions and millions of Chinese texted each other saying, "The government's lying." Panic. And so, you know, I you know, I thought the lesson that we would take away from that is, in the information age, governments need to use the infor- and understand the spread of information. And so. Forth. Well, the Chinese government didn't learn it this time. And if anybody listened to the podcast we did a couple of weeks ago with Lori Garrett, who is one of the leading experts on this, she talked about the level of deception of the Chinese government. But it seems like the U.S. government hasn't learned it either. Um, and, you know, it used to matter that you could trust your government to to tell you the they wouldn't you know the, the 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 you know politicians always lie about how great they are and stuff like that but when really you know if the, when the asteroid is heading for the planet you're expecting the government hmm. to 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 be straight with you and now i think the us is in a different situation where the people expect the government to be lying they they expect deception and it carries over beyond this right and 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 I want to sort of shift the discussion to a different dimension of this, which is a couple of weeks ago, we all were talking about the appointment of Rick Grinnell as a Director of National Intelligence. Now, as predicted, what the President did was he has appointed representative ratcliffe, who he had or he nominated representative ratcliffe, who he had nominated before to this job because it starts the clock again on Grinnell. And Grinnell, as you pointed out on the podcast, now can serve for 210 days more in this post, even if Radcliffe gets rejected or withdraws his nomination again. And that was pretty bad, and we were pretty outraged by it. But then he brought in a guy named Kash Patel, who was an NSC guy who was um, kind of a Republican enforcer in this thing, and the the message was he was going to weed out the disloyal members of the deep state, who were not towing the, the the line. The line, as you described it, in the Defense Department, we talk about it in the State Department as well. But now there's yet another person who's been brought into this mix, who is the White House lawyer, who um, I think his name is Ellis, who was. Um, responsible for trying to bury the whole Ukraine call in you know and protect the president by illegally classifying something that shouldn't really have been classified. Uh, and he's got a similar purpose and he's got you know an undersecretary level role in this agency um, that is a, you know the, the intelligence community's job is to gather intelligence and tell the truth, and 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 they're now putting a whole cluster of people in charge of it to suppress the truth to get rid of the truth tellers it's 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 dystopian Orwellian craziness, but you know I think most people who you know they're caught up in the election they're not following the appointment of Ellis What's the significance
2: yes, I do think this is a Looks like a takeover of the intelligence agencies, the intelligence community, f- with people who are very politically loyal to the president, and in fact have demonstrated their political loyalty through engaging in behavior that is uh, deeply unethical. Um, and so, and and now we have this, you know, forced choice that it looks like maybe even the Senate might bend because they have to choose between Ratcliffe and Grinnell <laughs> as the head of the. Office of Director of National Intelligence, uh, Kash Patel has come in and he's not actually I think the principal deputy because he couldn't be under statute, so instead he's just senior advisor and, you know, as we know with working in the government, that just requires the ODI and I telling everybody, Kash Patel's my person. So when he meet, goes into a meeting, he's speaking for me and, vice, and when you speak to him, he's uh, going to talk to me. So, And he, he basically functions in that same capacity. So. That's a takeover, and then the move of uh, Michael Ellis to be the Senior Director for Intelligence at the National Security Council is another one, and I actually, in preparing the piece that I wrote for Just Security, spoke to a number of people who have worked at the National Security Council to understand what is the potential influence of somebody in this position who has, in fact, uh, been implicated directly in the Ukraine cover-up. In fact, he is by name included in the articles of impeachment, which is remarkable, and I think that's. not by, uh, you know, without any serious thought given to putting him in there by name. And the amazing part of it is that that person in that role contain, uh, controls information flows, and it's not just to getting matters to Congress potentially in the way in which they relate to the ODNI, but it's also getting information to other officials in the National Security Council. And that was something that was pointed out to me that I wouldn't have thought about, that he will actually potentially control what information U.S. officials who are trying to serve the country get uh, on issues like uh, election interference uh, from now on because he's uh, really the can turn that information on or off or can select what uh, people see.
1: So, Max, for national security officials, for senior policymakers, the intelligence community is the decision support system in the U.S. government. It is the information system that is supposed to provide them with the, the, the insights and, and facts that they then use to make decisions. Um, it's the biggest and most complex and most sophisticated uh, and best funded such system on the planet Earth. And now you have a president of the United States who's saying, I want to change the purpose of the U.S. intelligence community. I want to have an intelligence community that supports me personally, my agenda, my friends, and does not offer up facts that may be contradictory to that or essential to making decisions, seems to me to be a giant national security risk to the United States. What do you think?
0: This is yeah, I, I mean, I agree, I think this is a uh, potentially a catastrophe for our national security, and it's just very hard to get anybody to pay attention because for understandable reasons, everybody is focused on the coronavirus on the stock market, on the democratic primaries. there's bigger stories out there, and that's kind of how trump operates he He slips things in uh when most people are not watching, and what he has done with the with the d n i post is very alarming and, and very scandalous where you know, he appointed as acting DNI Rick Grinnell. That was shocking to me because I remember Rick Grinnell as a Twitter troll. He was somebody who attacked me on Twitter in 2016 uh, because I was critical of, of Trump. And, you know, since then, he has been an ambassador in Germany who has been an embarrassment to America. He's basically been an, a, a promulgator of Trumpism rather than a representative of the United States of America. He's a guy who probably... Uh, could not even get hired as a junior CIA analyst because he has done public relations work on behalf of a shady Moldovan oligarch who is wanted on corruption charges. And he's also worked for a foundation on behalf of a foundation uh, funded by the authoritarian Hungarian government. Uh, So, you know, he he probably could not even get a security clearance if you were a normal government employee, but now he is able to be acting DNI. And then to replace him as the permanent DNI uh, uh, Trump has nominated John Ratcliffe, this attack dog uh, congressman from Texas, who has no qualifications in intelligence, but has shown himself to be this uh, uh, this willing uh, defender of Trump against anything and everybody. You know, defaming uh, Robert Mueller, defaming all of the uh, all of the civil servants who came forward to testify about how Trump tried to blackmail Ukraine, and so now. You know, he is giving uh, basically the Senate this what to him is a, is a no-lose scenario because either they uh, they confirm John Ratcliffe, whose nomination was pulled last summer, the last time he tried to put him forward, or if they fail to confirm uh, John Ratcliffe, it doesn't matter because then uh, uh, Trump has reset the clock on how long Rick Grenell can stay as acting DNI. And basically by appointing Ratcliffe – Trump more or less ensures that Rick Grinnell can stay as acting DNI for the rest of the year, even as the election is going on, even as we know that the Russians and other bad actors are targeting our elections. And remember uh, that the reason why Grinnell is, is acting DNI is because Trump fired his predecessor, Joe McGuire, after Maguire's deputy went to Capitol Hill and testified about how the Russians are attacking our elections and how the Russians have a preference for re electing Donald Trump. So basically, uh, to boil it down, McGuire was fired for telling the truth. And now Trump has somebody in the DNI job in charge of our entire intelligence community, somebody who will put the interests of Donald Trump above the interests of the nation. And oh, by the way, you know, I've talked to reporters who dealt with Rick Renault, and he was the spokesman for the U.S. mission to the U.N. And they said they have never met a more dishonest spokesman, that he lied all the time. And this is a job where you have to be a truth teller. You have to be willing to tell unpleasant truths to the president. And that's the last thing that Donald Trump wants to hear. And that's the last thing that Rick Grinnell is going to do. So basically, Donald Trump has hijacked our intelligence community and placed uh, these political loyalists on on top of there. Uh, and, And you have to think that Part of the reasoning may be to prevent the intelligence community from fighting back against Russian political interference and certainly to prevent the emergence of a whistleblower like the one who revealed Donald Trump's attempts to blackmail Ukraine. This is just an incredibly nefarious and dangerous attack on the rule of law and the foundation of our democracy. And I'm so you know, I'm so glad, David, that we're talking about it here because I, I'm just very frustrated that not enough people are paying attention to this.
1: Well, it's interesting, you know. I remember when. By the way, you are not the only one. Rick Grinnell trolled me too. He attacked me several times back in the day when he was an attacked. Did he ever attack you, Ryan? He feeling bad. He did not. He didn't. Well, maybe, maybe the time. <laughs> Give will him a come. chance. You'll still yeah, have to Yeah, the worry. time will come. Um, he should have attacked you. I just, I want you to know that. But, but I, you know, I, I remember back, you know, when Trump was coming in, some of the apologists were like, "Well, look." This is Trump. Trump's a marketer. Trump's the guy, you know, he's the front guy. He's going to let everybody do their job, and essentially he's going to go out and he's going to spin things, and maybe he'll talk about them a little bit too much. But, you know, he's a PR guy. Um, but, but, but here's what happened. Instead of being the PR guy for his administration and sometimes lying, he has turned the purpose of the entire administration into PR, into serving the storyline about him that he wants to sell. And this president, who got elected in part by a disinformation campaign from a foreign enemy, has turned the government, Mike Pompeo, Mike Esper, Rick Grinnell at ODNI, into a disinformation Machine and fired everybody he has seen. Anybody who's come up and said, I want to tell the truth. Marie Ivanovich, Alexander Vindman, you know, Alexander Vindman's brother, Yevgeny, gets fired because he's his brother. Um, uh, you know, whistleblowers, everybody. They all get cleaned out. The message is very clear down the line to you know to, that that if you tell the truth if you stand up to the president if you advance the you know the the, the your obligations uh, you know under your oath to the constitution you're going to get fired if you lie for the president if you spread disinformation if you minimize risks that the president thinks are politically ugly if you eliminate stories that the president thinks are politically ugly you will succeed within this administration the whole government born of a disinformation campaign, has become a disinformation engine.
2: Yes, and I think what's also remarkable about it is not just the PR of the outward-facing lies, and I also want to just add uh, uh, the National Security Advisor O'Brien to that list, but it also appears to be lies towards the president, not not to tell him um, things that he doesn't want to hear. And uh, and also just to give attribution back to Kate Brennan, because it was in a conversation with her and she had registered something that I saw too, but I didn't register in the same way. There's that video clip where uh, the president is meeting in this high-powered meeting about the uh, coronavirus. And he says to his um, officials, he says, "Um, can the flu vaccine do something (laughs) to help with the coronavirus? Is that just... We're so deep into the crisis, and he's asking the most insane question that demonstrates he has no knowledge about what's really going on.
1: well, he doesn't even know what a vaccine is in, right. in that clip right. he's like, right. well you know i don't I don't mean a vaccine I mean something that could make you feel better
2: that's right and what was so so that's that on that on its own is just so alarming, and I hope that at some level it alarms MAGA families because they should understand their children's lives are at stake here with this level of incompetence but the other part is that the official, I don't know who it was, but they're off-camera. Their response is to this question, probably not. <laughs> Just like, not, sir, the science says that's inconceivable. It's probably not. It shows you the f- internal fear for contradicting him. Well, it's
1: like Mike Pompeo was asked, is this a hoax? <laughs> right. And he refused to answer.
2: Yes, with Jake Tapper. Yeah,
1: uh, yeah. 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 The, whether it was a hoax or not. Yeah, exactly. That they're 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 afraid of even calling things into question.
2: Yeah,
1: um, it's 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 you know reached a kind of remarkable thing, and it and it happens all the time in every way, Max. You know, like uh, earlier this week, the president had another one of his beautiful phone calls with the head of the Taliban. Now again, you know, I mean what one of the the weirdest games we play in or you know, in, in this this world is, you know, imagine if Obama had had a phone call with the head of the Taliban. But so Trump has a phone call with the head of the Taliban and then he says it was a very good phone call. He didn't say it was perfect. He said it was a very good phone call. And a day later there were like 30, 40 attacks of the Taliban um, uh, you know against um, you know the Af- Afghan government uh, locations and civilians. Uh, in violation of the temporary, you know, uh, 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 cessation of hostilities that Pompeo had engineered just a couple of days before, and and the president says it's fine, and a day later it's not fine, and it's not even a story. Nobody, nobody gives a shit. You know, you were you're talking about how hard it is to get people's attention. This, you know, this, this is the Taliban. These were the allies of, you know, uh, Osama bin Laden. These were the people that we've chosen to fight a war for 20 years, quite apart from the fact that we're essentially surrendering and getting out of Dodge and handing the keys back to them saying, whoops, sorry. You know, the, 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 the reality is he's lying about this, um, like he's lying about the coronavirus, like he's lying about the Russian intervention, like he's having people lie for him at every level of the United States government. And not a peep, not not even from you know news media, not even from observers. they're not there weren't a plethora of columns and you know various places saying, "Oh, there he goes again. This is really dangerous what, what right. what's what's going on, Max?
0: Well, I wrote about the the Afghan peace deal, and I just feel like there's not a lot of interest I, that those columns of mine did not generate the kind of clicks that. That other pieces do. Uh, this is kind of the forgotten war and and now it's the it's the forgotten settlement or the forgotten withdrawal from the war. But you know, I was thinking in playing that, you know, the game that you mentioned, what if Obama did this? Because, you know, I'm old enough to recall when uh, President Obama released five Taliban members in return for Sergeant Bo Bergdahl, who was held by the Taliban, and the Republicans went nuts. I mean, they said he was selling out our national security, they basically called him a traitor. Et cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, now Trump is not releasing five members of the Taliban. He is releasing 5,000 of them. And this is over the protests of the democratically elected government of Afghanistan, President Ashraf Ghani, who in fact is saying that he's that those, those prisoners are actually in his custody and he's not going to release them because this, they would just go right back to to killing innocent people, and that would denude him of any leverage, negotiating leverage in his talks in the talks with the Taliban, which may or may not start. Um, and, you know, so if, if, you know, President Obama or President Clinton were releasing 5,000 Taliban, I mean, you could imagine that all, every Republican in the land would be having apoplexy. I mean, you know, Sean Hannity would be on every night screaming about treason, sellout, uh, you know, how the death penalty is the only fit punishment, et cetera. And now there is, you know, with, with a handful of exceptions, and I will I will give props here. To a couple of people, I often disagree with John Bolton and Liz Cheney, who I think are honest enough to say this is a bad deal and to speak out against it. But otherwise, it's it's really crickets. Uh, even though they would be livid uh, if any Democrat did this, and you know, unfortunately, this is just part of the pattern of this administration, where uh, just Trump can get away with with stuff that nobody else can get away with, and especially stuff that Republicans would never let a Democrat uh, get away with. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite worried about what is the fallout going to be of the, of the so-called Afghan peace deal, which is not really a peace deal at all, uh, because it actually, the terms from what we know, and we don't know everything, but the terms that we know of are are much worse than what administration spokesman and the negotiators had led us to believe, because they very carefully hid the fact that we were going to withdraw entirely within 14 months, not just all of our troops, but also all of our allied troops, all of our contractors are all going to be gone within 14 months. We're going to release these 5,000 prisoners and oh, by the way, we're also going to lift sanctions on the Taliban, even as the Taliban are completely undefeated and continue with their offensive. So, you know, what kind of incentive do the Taliban now have to negotiate with the government of of Afghanistan and make any kind of concessions, they don't. I mean, all they have to do is wait fourteen months after eighteen years of war. Fourteen more months will be gone, and the government of Afghanistan will will be at their mercy. So, uh, you know that I I really worry. I fear what's going to happen to our friends in Afghanistan. People have risked their lives to resist the Taliban. What's going to happen to the women of Afghanistan? I mean, I think this is a a true tragedy in the making, and and I fear very few Americans. Uh, care about it.
1: Well, I think that may be the problem, honestly. I mean, um, f- you know, we went in in, in, uh, in in the wake of 9-11 to do what any president would do, which was go after the people who went after us, um, but then stayed and got involved. And the Taliban have known, just as the tribal leaders have known there, just as the government of Afghanistan has known since 2001, that we would someday leave that we didn't really care that much, that there wasn't a lot of political will to be there. And whether it was the Bush administration or the Obama administration or the Trump administration, that was the message that was being sent. Um, And now, you know, Ed Luce, uh, our our Deep State Radio colleague, has a column today in the FD uh, in which he talks about, you know, the Taliban know that Trump will take any deal. He just wants out. And they can do anything they want he just wants out and trump knows no one gives a shit
2: right i think that's yeah, yeah i think that's right um and yeah and josh Geltz had pointed that out as well on twitter that the you know the art of the deal guy the the deal maker signaled well in advance that he was going to pull out um so why would the taliban give anything up in those negotiations and it explains their activities today. Um, And I also I do think that this is going to potentially be even a bigger issue because in the way in which that the public is checked out and the president can uh, manipulate messaging during the election. I always thought it would be the case if this ends up being uh, Biden versus uh, Trump, that Trump will actually sell it in a certain sense, which I think is has a certain powerful register to it of withdrawing from forever wars, and that in fact people voted for Obama thinking that that's what they would get, but Trump's delivering. So I think this particular topic is one that'll be with us um, for the next several months.
1: Well, let's spend the last five minutes talking a little bit about what you've just brought up. Um, uh, We had Super Tuesday this week, and the consequence of Super Tuesday was a series of very big wins for Joe Biden. Not just a lot of delegates, but very substantial margins in state after state and state after state Bernie Sanders getting 20% of the vote, 25% of the vote, always under 30% of the vote. And um, and the the aftermath of that, of course, was that Mike Bloomberg dropped out and Elizabeth Warren dropped out of the race. I personally, you know, sort of had been a Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris kind of guy and and I you know, I was kind of disappointed by all of that, but I also realized that at the end of the day, for all the reasons we've just been talking about getting rid of Trump is important, and so you know, there is a time to coalesce around a candidate and the sooner the Democrats do it, the more likely they are of winning. Uh, And it looks like, for whatever reasons, and and I think some of them are not not great reasons, the Democratic Party is going to coalesce around Joe Biden. So now you have this stunning contrast. It's two old white guys, admittedly. But the stunning contrast is somebody has been in Washington his whole life, somebody is a foreign policy professional, somebody who is an institutionalist, uh, somebody who has been dealing with all of these issues, ins and outs, at a very you know, sort of microscopic level for a long, long time versus this president who doesn't care. On the other hand, you've got this president who will literally stand on a debate stage, and I predict it now, we will see it happen. And Joe Biden will say, ba 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 ba, Afghanistan or ba 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 ba, coronavirus. And the president will lie to his face, and 50 ish percent of the American people will go, President was more lively and more energetic and got a good quip off there. Joe Biden hesitated. Um, the president got the better of that. I'm going with the president. And so Biden's got the chops and he's going to bring a different kind of case the you know but it's going to be very much the same case Hillary Clinton might have brought I mean they're not in the same exact place in the party but you know they they very wonky very fact-based process-based case um but uh, but you know that's got its pitfalls and you sort of have to ask yourself you know is is Joe Biden Hillary Redux, John Kerry Redux, Michael Dukakis Redux, Walter Mondale Redux—you know, you know, Al, Al Gore Redux—where the Democrats throw earnestness and facts at candidates who don't really care about those things so much. Well, Max, you know, how how does this all play out?
0: Well, I mean, we don't know uh, with with Biden how it, it it plays out, but I think that the odds of success against Trump are greater than if the Democrats had nominated Bernie Sanders, which is where it looked like they were heading a couple of weeks ago, uh, because Sanders is this far-left figure who labels himself a democratic socialist. And you know, Trump would certainly certainly attack any democratic opponent as an open-border socialist, but Bernie Sanders actually is an open-border socialist, so it's very hard for him to defend against that. And I just think that uh, Sanders would risk alienating a lot of middle-of-the-road voters that Democrats needed to win the House in 2018 and need to win uh, uh, the White House in 2020, whereas I think Biden has a real chance to mobilize a broad coalition. He's, you know, Bernie Sanders' whole play is mobilize his base. He's never really moved beyond his youthful left-wing base, whereas Biden has shown an ability to— to mobilize a much broader coalition, including a lot of these uh, white suburban college-educated women, who were crucial in handing the house to uh, to the uh, Democrats in 2018, they can't stand Trump, and if they have, I think if they have an acceptable Democratic candidate, they will vote for that candidate. So I think you know Biden actually could turn out to be a very formidable candidate against Trump, and that's why I think you saw Trump freaking out and, and, and basically got himself indicted, trying to knock off uh, <laughs> knock off uh, Biden with this bogus Ukraine scandal, which then blew up in his face. Now, just the fact that it's blown up in his face is not going to stop him from running that, that same play uh, and making him out to be crooked, you know, uh, Joe, just like they tried to make out crooked Hillary. They're going to run a lot of the same playbook. And now they're claiming that, you know, Biden is senile, uh, although he's he sounds pretty darn articulate compared to Donald Trump 95 percent of the time. And of course, now they're going to be claiming that, you know, Biden is going to drop dead any day, just like they claim that Hillary Clinton was going to drop dead any day four years ago. So they're going to run all the same charges. But the question is, is it going to stick? And I think there is good cause to, to think at least some of it is not going to stick because, uh, you know, I just think that uh, people know who Joe Biden is. Uh, he has not been defined as negatively as Hillary Clinton was for decades and I think people understand that, yeah, he's kind of inarticulate and he, he blunders, he commits gaffes, but he's basically a good natured guy. Uh, he's not a crook. He's he's actually somebody who's a very empathetic and, and, and sympathetic person. Um, so, you know, I don't want to underestimate the Trump attack machine because they are not bound by any scruples. Uh, they don't mind being utterly dishonest. They're probably going to be helped by Russia, frankly. Uh, so this is going to be you know what's going to happen is going to be a great concern, but uh, but I think this would have happened to any Democratic candidate, and I think uh, just based on on who Joe Biden is and what kind of campaign he's run, I think he has a real chance to prevail. I think that's you know really putting the fear into into Trump, and this in some ways this could be one of his worst weeks in a long time because the combination of coronavirus and, and Joe Biden uh, may do far greater damage to his presidency than than Ukraine and Adam Schiff were able to do.
1: Um, There's no question about that. Um, Just in the minute or two we've got left, Ryan, one of the things that we know we can count on is the return of Burisma, Hmm. the return of Senate investigations. Ron Johnson has talked already about... We are going to dig into this. And it it doesn't really matter. You know, Hillary Clinton didn't do anything wrong in Benghazi, and she didn't do anything wrong with her servers, and she didn't do anything wrong with the Clinton Global Initiative. Um, But that was enough to raise some doubts. What do you think is going to happen on the Burisma front?
2: So I think that's right. It's just incredible to see that members of the Republican Senate are uh, willing to do the very thing that Trump got impeached for, um, in part by... These uh, cockamamie investigations of Joe Biden related to Burisma, when there's no legal violation there, there's maybe unethical behavior – there is unethical behavior in the part of Hunter Biden – but there's no there there. But I totally agree with you, David. It doesn't matter whether or not there's there there. It's about the presentation of it. But I just think the there's one hopeful sign, which is that Mitt Romney today already made a statement that he thinks that this is kind of politically bankrupt on the part of Ron Johnson and, R- and Romney's on the committee that has to vote for the subpoenas next week. So that's something to watch. But Ron Johnson, and I plan to write a little bit of something about this, is so directly implicated in the Ukraine <laughs> scheme it's just ridiculous. Um, the, he is at the White House meeting when the three amigos are created, and Ambassador talked about that as the parallel track. That's where it began, and he's there. Um, he then tries to vouch for Trump by saying, oh, yes, Ambassador Sondland told me about the quid pro quo, but then I asked the president, and he told me that it was not true. So I, so then what happened? So he covered it up, and he never told his colleagues on the Senate that this is what he had discovered. That's an interesting point of it. And something else that uh, requires a little bit more of analysis, but the statement that Ron Johnson kind of enters into the record for the Senate trial is not aligned with Ambassador Sondland's testimony under oath about what that conversation that the two of them had, and I, I plan to explore that a little bit more just because I think it's ridiculous. There was actually a lot of pieces had been written about Ron Johnson maybe needed to recuse himself from the Senate trial. I didn't necessarily go there all the way because I think there are other implications to that. But this is the person who's now trying to take up the charge. Um, I think it's just so, lacks any kind of credibility and it's good to see somebody like Mitt Romney speak out and hopefully he can bring some others with him.
1: He was one of those senators spent July 4th in Moscow too, wasn't he? Yes. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's that's where we are, folks. Unfortunately, where we also are is we're out of time here. It's always great to have you on, Max, and to have the time to have a conversation with you. And Ryan, of course, it's great to... See you, and uh, we'll be back again next week with a couple more uh podcasts and undoubtedly more worrisome stuff. In the meantime, don't touch your face under any circumstances. Um, I do you want to
2: point out that David touched his face a number of times?
1: I may have touched my right. my face. Um, I yeah. can't feel my face. Yeah.
0: This is this is like the Faulty Towers episode, you know, whatever you do, don't mention the war, yeah. And of course, <laughs> that's all they can talk about. Well,
1: that's that's what everybody's talking about now. I never yeah. even thought that I'd of touching my face until all this happened. Uh, <laughs> wash your hands. And um, and if you can't go outside, what should you do? Listen to Deep State Radio. Go to the DSRnetwork.com. Read Max's columns in the Washington Post. Go to Just Security. Read all the great stuff that Ryan and his colleagues are putting up. If You know, the coronavirus might not be so bad after all. If you do those things, you'll end up coming out of all this smarter— See you again soon. Bye-bye.